Hear the word of the Lord. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 1. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause. For he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Father, what a joy it is to stand before your people here and now to proclaim your word, to to preach to them. And I ask that you would be with me as I do stand to proclaim your word. May you fill me with your spirit. May you be with my mind and my mouth and my heart so that I may think clearly as I go through my notes. May you be with my mouth to speak clearly in ways that are understandable, and may I preach these things with with passion, the joy, the the beautiful things that are found within these verses. And Father, I also ask that that You would be with those who are sitting before me now. May they be ready to, to hear Your Word. May they be ready to receive it with glad hearts, with joy welling up in their very souls. Father, we thank You for who You are, for your character, and most of all, we thank you for Christ. And may He be made known here this morning within these verses. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The preacher begins in verse 1 of chapter 8 with questions. He says, Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? And the question 
that should be going through our minds as we read his questions is what is he trying to make us think of? What's he trying to paint in our minds? What picture is he trying to paint in our minds? And for us to find that answer, we, we need to go back to what we were looking at last week in the, the latter part of chapter 7. Specifically, in verse 23 and then down into verses 25 to 29. Now what was He showing us there last week? What He was showing us is how difficult it is to find wisdom. He said that He would be wise, but it was far from Him. And then He says that it was deep, very deep. Who can find it out? Wisdom is difficult to find. And then we went over to Job chapter 28 and we saw there that not only is wisdom difficult to find, to search out, to find the pathway to it, but in and of ourselves by our own strength as human beings, it's impossible to find because only God Himself knows the way to wisdom. He is the only one who can completely and exhaustively search out Wisdom. And so for us to find wisdom, we must go to God. We must seek His face. And as Job said in chapter 28, we must fear Him. To fear the Lord is to find wisdom and to turn away from evil. That is to seek understanding. But the preacher made in verses, he made it clear in verses 25 to 29 that there's no one that does fear the Lord. You know, where is the one who fears the Lord? Where is the one who cares about uprightness? He said in verse 28 that he only found one man among a thousand that somewhat cared about wisdom or seeking uprightness, seeking understanding. Only one man among a thousand. And even that man is still a sinner. He's not completely righteous. So we are lost in our foolishness. We don't care about wisdom. We don't care about uprightness. And so here in chapter 8, he is continuing his lament, you could say, about where is the wise person? Where's the person who cares about wisdom, uprightness, fearing the Lord? Where is he at? Who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? The answer is, there are very few. And the only reason why there are few is because God has shown mercy on those few. That is the only reason why anyone seeks after wisdom, God-fearing wisdom that is, because God has shown mercy upon them. But for the person who does seek out wisdom, for the person who does possess this God-fearing wisdom, He says that it makes their face shine. A man's wisdom makes his face shine. And the hardness of his face is changed. What He means there is that you can tell the difference between a person who has this wisdom and the person who does not have it. Because their face shines. 
and their whole complexion is changed, which is what he means by saying that their hardness of face is changed. Their, their character is different. The way that they carry themselves is totally different from the person who is lost in foolishness, who cares nothing about uprightness. You can tell the difference. And that's the goal of all 15 verses that we're about to look at. Remember, this man is the preacher, as he calls himself. And he has been seeking to show, in his day, the people of Israel what is good for them to do. And so far, the two main things that we have seen is to seek wisdom. You know, he's been commending wisdom throughout the book, and he's going to continue to do so here. And then he's been commending joy, which is what we are also going to see at the end of these verses. So he is preaching wisdom. He is looking out into this world that is lost in their foolishness. And he's saying, seek out wisdom. Care about wisdom. Fear God. Because when you do so, it will make your face shine. Your character will change. And you will find what is good for you. So that is the whole point of this passage. He wants to help you seek wisdom. And in seeking it, may your face shine and may your character display it. And the way that he is going to do this is he's going to give us two collections of wise counsel. And the first collection of wise sayings or wise counsel we're going to find in verses 2. To nine. Verses 2 to 9 is going to be his first section of wise counsel. And it's going to be focused upon wise counsel for living under a corrupt king or government. And then the, the second collection that we are going to find is going to be in verses 10 to 14. And their focus... These wise sayings in verses 10 to 14 are going to be focused on wise counsel for when the wicked seem to prosper and the righteous suffer. So those are the breakdown. That's the breakdown of these 15 verses. So let's walk through the, the first collection. Wise counsel for living under a corrupt king or government. And he begins by saying, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. That's in verse 2. And the phrase God's oath to him that you see there, it can be translated in two ways. The way that we see here in the ESV, if that's what you're reading, or also in the NIV, and they translate it because of your oath to God. And the reason why it can be translated in multiple ways is because the ESV has the view that God is the one who put the king there. And so you obey, you keep his command because of God's oath to him. He's the one who put him there. He's the one who gave him his authority. And then the second translation, the one that the NIV takes, is like in the context of a servant in the king's house. He would have had, he would to, he would have to have taken an oath before the king to serve Him in uprightness, in, in faithfulness. And so because of that oath, 
He was to serve uprightly, faithfully, because of his oath to the king. Now I think that the first phrase that I mentioned, the one that the ESV takes, I think that's the one that's more accurate because it goes along with not only this specific context that we see here in Ecclesiastes, but every king that has ever sat on a throne or every government that has power because God is the one who has given them that authority. God is the one who allows a king to sit on a throne in the first place. And we're going to look in a minute at Romans chapter 13 where Paul says this to the Roman Christians in the New Testament time period. So I think that God's oath to him is more accurate. So because of that reason, because God is the one who puts, in this context, the king on his throne, and in our context, the government in their power, we are to... Be obedient. We are to obey these authorities. It is a wise thing to obey the authorities that are put before you. Now this can be tricky because our government, and in their context, their king, they were not always, I guess you could say, worthy to be obeyed. Sometimes they didn't necessarily treat people how they were supposed to treat them. Now remember, in their day, a king could do whatever he wanted to do. If he wanted to execute somebody because he just didn't like them or because of some ethical reason, he could do so. He could bring about laws or tax people in ways. He could oppress them in ways that would cause them much grief. And in our day, it's similar. I mean, our government doesn't carry the same amount of supreme authority that a king did in their day, but they still do unrighteous things. I mean, they still carry out laws that are unrighteous or ungodly. They still oppress us in ways. You know, that the government does things that we don't like. I know that you are all very aware of that but we are still called to obey them. It is wise to be obedient to these authorities, first and foremost because of God's oath to them. But we only obey insofar as it goes according to what God's Word says. The moment that they step outside of God's Word and they try to put something on the people of God that God Himself does not command, then we are called to disobey. Now that's tricky, because what does this disobedience look like? How are we to go about disobeying the king or the government authorities? And I have two examples that I want to bring up that give us a good picture of of what obedience and disobedience look like in these circumstances. The first example example comes from Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah, which are also known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which is what they're more known as, those names, the, the Babylonian names that they were given. But anyways, at this time, Daniel 
in their context, Daniel and their three and his three friends were taken out of their their city, out of their homeland, Judah. They were taken. They were taken into exile to the city of Babylon. And not only were they exiled of their, out of their own country, but the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, recruited them to serve him in his own house, in his own court. And these four guys display obedience because they treated the Babylonian empire and the king himself with great respect. They obeyed this man, even in the midst of their circumstances. I mean, think about what I just said. He took them from their country, laid waste to their city. Would you want to obey? No, I wouldn't want to obey, especially not in his own house, in his court serving him, learning his laws, his culture. But these four guys do that. And they do it so well that they are praised by the Babylonian king himself. They're they're lifted up and given great seats of authority. Remember, Daniel himself was given one of the highest authorities that you could have besides the king himself. He was like his personal counselor who interpreted his dreams. And then his three friends... They also were given high positions of authority to serve in the Babylonian empire because of their great respect and obedience. But at the same time, these four men experienced times where they had to disobey. Daniel was asked, and his friends were asked to put aside the law of God as far as how the foods that they ate, They were asked to put aside that to eat the Babylonian culture's food. But they disobeyed. Now the way that they disobeyed is key. They didn't rise up and make a a scene out of it. They didn't protest in some great way. No, Daniel went to one of the advisors and he said, look, we can't eat this stuff. So what we're going to do is we're going to eat vegetables and you can come and check on us and you'll see that we're going to look like the rest of these guys. That's all he did. He did this in a very humble way, in a very quiet way. And then Daniel was also, later on in the book of Daniel, he was also confronted with a time where he was asked to disobey God, and he humbly, once again, disagreed and said that he would not obey the king of Babylon and he was thrown in the lion's den for it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were called to bow down and worship this statue that Nebuchadnezzar constructed of himself. They didn't say ugly things to the king. They didn't say ugly things to the people of Babylon. No, they simply, when they were called to bow down, They just kept standing. And they were thrown in the fiery furnace for it, but God delivered them. So we are to be the same. This is the example that is given to us. We are to obey our authorities. How do we obey them? Do we treat them with respect? And when it comes time to disobey, do we protest in some unrighteous way? 
Do we go about in, in protesting you know, some of the ways that we can see on the news? You know, gathering a mob of people together, destroying you know, communities just for the sake of trying to make it a point? You know, we're not called to do that. We are called to obey, but when disobedience is called for, we do it humbly and respectfully like the examples of Daniel and his three friends. And also we have the example in Acts 4 of Peter and John when they were preaching the gospel and healed a man. The, the Jerusalem council, the religious leaders of that day, brought them before them and said, we don't want you to do this. We don't want you to be preaching the gospel. Quit. And they said in a very respectful and humble way, we are called to obey God rather than men. Observe that for yourselves. We will continue preaching the gospel. And that was it. That's what their disobedience looked like. They stood firm in God's word, but they also respected the authorities that were over them. The second piece of wise counsel that is within this first collection is be not hasty to go from his presence, talking about the king. Now, this was this seems strange to us. You know, what's the big deal about hastiness in the presence of the king? What's the big deal if I get in a hurry when I'm in His presence? Well, think about the example of Esther. You remember the book of Esther? A Jewish girl was entered into a beauty pageant. She eventually became the queen of Persia. And during this time period, she was confronted with the fact that her people, the Jewish people, were going to be destroyed. And the only way for her to save her people was if she went into the presence of the king to, to plead for them. But she went in His presence knowing that if He did not call her to be there, she could be killed. And she hadn't been called. So she went in His presence knowing that she could be put to death for it. So I'd bring up that example just to show you the weightiness of what it looked like to go in His presence. To go into the presence of the king, you had to be called there. And if you were called there and you treated the presence of the king lightly, then he could put you to death on the spot because you were not respecting him how he thought you should be. Now in our day, we're not going to be put to death on the spot if we enter into a courthouse or court of law in a a hasty way or a disrespectful way. But the core point here still rings true for us. How do you enter in the presence of authorities? Do you do so in a lighthearted way? Oh, these people are corrupt. They take my money. I don't care what they think of me. And I honestly don't care about them. You know, if you're... uh, So I just recently got a letter for jury duty. Yeah, I, I laughed too whenever I got it. I was like, man, they finally got me. But... You know, being a citizen of your country, you are called to to treat these things with respect. When you go into a court of law for, for whatever reason, when you are in the presence of authorities, policemen or whatever, how do you treat these people who have been given their authority by God? Do you treat them disrespectfully? Or do you treat them with the respect that we see here? carrying yourself into their presence with a God-honoring respect, a God-honoring character? Do we treat them with sour attitudes? The third piece of wise counsel that we see within this first collection 
is he begins by saying, Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. Talking about the king. And he's talking about protesting, like I mentioned a moment ago. Whenever it comes time to disagree with the king, when it comes time to disagree with the authorities, how do you do so? Do you take your stand in an evil cause? Do you join hands with a group of protesters who really don't care about making their point? They just want to cause trouble. They want to get back at the government, you could say. You know, let's, let's show this king what we're made of. You know, he's a piece of garbage anyway. Do we, do we take our stand in ways like that? In evil causes? And he gives a reminder, he says, For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? He's reminding these people that the king's word is supreme. If you take your stand in that way, in an evil cause, again, he can punish you right there. He can put you to death if you come before him in an evil way. In our day... We may not be put to death, but there's consequences, there are punishments for going against the government in unjust ways. Now, there are right ways to do this. I mean, you have freedom of speech. You know, you can say what you want, but what does your speech look like? What does your stand that you take look like? Does it look like what he says in an evil way? Or is it in a righteous way? Taking your stand, making your point, standing firm in God's Word when you're called to disagree? Or does it look like someone who is ungodly, who could care less about the authority that God has given to us as a gift? And then he says, whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise in heart will know the proper time and the just way, for there is a time and way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. The point there is that the wise person will know when to take a stand and when not to take a stand. And he will also know how to conduct himself when he takes that stand, when he disagrees. He will know how to carry himself. And the result, generally speaking... Now let me be careful to say that again. Generally speaking, you will know no evil thing. That is, you will know no harm because you carry yourself in a way that the government can't punish you for it because you're, you're treating them with honor, with respect, even as you disagree with them. But generally speaking, that doesn't always happen. Because you think about all the Christian martyrs who treated the government with respect, but who at the same time were killed for preaching the gospel. So that's generally speaking. It doesn't always happen that way. But still we are called to have honor and to respect for the authorities that are over us. We are to have this wisdom, and in having wisdom, even though our trouble lies heavy upon us, we will know what to do and how to do it. Now before we move on to, to verse 7, I want you to, to turn with me to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. Because in Romans chapter 13, Paul sums up quite nicely what the preacher is saying here in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Romans chapter 13, I'm going to begin in verse 1. And now remember, whenever Paul was writing to the Roman Christians, 
They lived underneath corrupt government. They lived underneath the rule of the emperor, Caesar. And this is what he says to them. He says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And if you remember, Jesus Christ Himself in His life was tried to... He was... He was put into a corner by the Pharisees and He was asked the question, Tell us, good teacher, should we pay taxes? And Jesus responded, Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Render unto God what is God's. And that's what Paul's talking about there in Romans chapter 13. And that's what the author of Ecclesiastes is talking about here in chapter 8. Render unto the authorities what is theirs but at the same time, render unto God what is God's. And the, the greatest example that we have of this is the life of Christ itself. He lived under corrupt authorities, and He was put to death by corrupt authorities, but He treated them with utmost respect. Think about that for a moment. God Himself in Christ, who had authority over every single person that was in His presence, humbled Himself before them in their corruption. He humbled Himself, the King of glory. He humbled Himself before earthly authorities. We are to go and do likewise, friends. Now as we move to verse 7, we are once again given the, the all too familiar sober reminder that although He can give you wise counsel, He can give you good things to do, good things to practice, wisdom sometimes falls short. Because as He says, For He does not know what is to be, for who can tell Him how it will be? Ultimately, sometimes you just don't know what's going to happen. You can obey, you can treat them with respect, but sometimes things just aren't going to go in your favor. Sometimes your wisdom just has its limits and you can't understand. And then he gives us four examples in the following verses 8 to 9 that, that show us our limitation of, of wisdom, our limitation of what we can know and what we control. First, he gives the example of our control over the wind. He says, No man has power to retain the spirit, 
retain the Spirit. Now in the ESV, you read Spirit. In the NIV, you read the word wind. And I think here in this verse, the NIV has the word wind right. Because the Hebrew word, which is ruach, can either be translated as spirit or it can be translated as wind. And I think the NIV has it right because he's talking about, as he's been saying, we can't catch the wind. Like a man striving after the wind, we have no power to retain the wind. That's what our our wisdom is like. Ultimately, it, it eludes us. It eludes our grasp. Second, we cannot control or even know when we will die. You do not know when you will die, and you cannot control when you will die. For all we know, it's very possible that some of us, when we leave here today, could die. And there's nothing you can do about it. And you don't know it. Only God knows. He is the only one who has the power and the wisdom to know when you will die and how you will die. You do not have that control. Third, someone cannot control when they are discharged from war. Now, as far as I understand, I think this holds true today. When you sign up to be in the military, you cannot discharge yourself until you complete that service. If you try to discharge yourself, I believe that they'll just put you in military prison. Well, even more so in their day. The only way that you were going to be discharged from your position of battle was if, the king, was if the king himself allowed you to. If the king didn't give you permission to be discharged from war, then you weren't leaving the battlefield. You were stuck there. Fourth, and the fourth example that he gives, this, this is a strange one. He says, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. And what I think he's showing is that wickedness in the end will consume all who give themselves over to it. That is, if someone thinks that they can use wickedness or wicked ways to their own advantage to, to escape in some way, you know, that their wrongdoings will get them out of something, then they're mistaken. They're mistaken. It has, ultimately, it has control over you and it will consume you in the end. You do, not ho- you do not have control over wickedness. It has control over you. And then the preacher says, concluding this first collection, he says, all this I have observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his earth. All of those wise sayings he observes in that area when man had power over man to his hurt. The second collection of wise counsel, which is focused on when the wicked seem to prosper and the righteous suffer, begins in verse 10. And he starts out by telling us either about this funeral or funerals, plural, that he has witnessed. He says, then I saw the wicked buried. So he's watching. He sees this funeral procession procession going on. And not only were these wicked people praised in their lifetime in in doing their wickedness, but now they're even praised in their death, in their burial. So they're, they're not only praised when they did the wickedness, but now they're being praised 
at their funeral for it, for the very wickedness that they did. People are praising them for it. And this bothers the preacher. He doesn't understand it. He says they used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city that they had done such things. This also is vanity there in verse 10. And one of the things that adds to all of this wickedness that he says in verse 11 is that the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. So because of slowness, either in the area of human authorities, human justice, or even in the area of God's justice, you know, God taking His time in bringing forth justice on the wicked, we take advantage of it. The heart of the children of man is fully to set to do evil. We take advantage of this slowness, even on the human authorities or on God's authority. And we see that in Second Peter, where those false teachers, they cry out and say, where, where's the promise of His coming? You know, where is He coming? Where, where's His final judgment, so to speak? They see that He's taking His time and they use the opportunity to just abound in their wickedness. But even in the midst of this, the preacher has hope. And this is his first piece of wise counsel in this second collection. He says, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times, so even though he abounds in his wickedness, and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. So his hope in those verses is that the final judgment is going to come, and that the one who does fear God, it will go well with him, because in God's final judgment, when it does come in the fullness of time, wickedness will not be praised at all. It will be crushed. And for the one who does not fear God, the one who does praise and practice wickedness, they will be destroyed. They will not prolong their days like a shadow. And the picture here is... When evening comes, you know, when the sun begins to set, begins to be more horizontal and its light shines on the trees and the shadow lengthens because the sun is horizontal and not directly over. So when it goes to the side horizontally, the shadows of things lengthen. That's what he's saying here. Their lives are not even going to be like that. They're not, their lives are not going to lengthen. God is going to bring judgment and He's going to bring it swiftly. And then in verses 14 to 15, we get our last piece of wise counsel. And it's joy. He says, I commend joy. But before He commends joy, He gives us once again something that He just quite can't wrap His mind around. He says, there is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. 
We saw this last week. Good things happen to bad people. Bad things happen to good people. And here, he doesn't really give us any wise advice on this. He just says that you can't completely understand it. You know, wisdom grasps to understand it. It grasps to to understand why these things happen. But ultimately, you just don't know why. I mean, why do righteous people die in seemingly strange ways? We don't know. And he says, and I commend joy. So in the midst of all of this, in the midst of the things that you can't understand, you know, don't, don't consume yourself in trying to understand them. Don't consume yourself in trying to figure out, as he's been saying, what God has made crooked. It's not going to work. So don't consume yourself so much that you forget to enjoy what you do know, what you do have, what God has given to you. And that's why he says, and I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. And this is one of the wisest things that he can tell us. Enjoy. Enjoy what you have. Now, even as we come to verse 15, we still don't completely understand this, do we? I mean, all of this is still very confusing. I mean, how can you commend joy to me while I suffer? It just doesn't make sense. You know what, preacher, why don't you walk a mile in my shoes, and then tell me that you commend joy, right? You know, how does that make sense? How can He commend joy to us? I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8. A picture that we get here in verse 14, you know, Him talking about the, the righteous getting what the wicked deserve, and the wicked getting what the righteous deserve. Who did that make you think of? Who fulfills that? Christ does. He got what the wicked, which is you and me, He got what they deserve. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could have life and salvation. And because of that, that picture that I just gave you, Christ getting what we deserve, this is how Paul can write what he writes in Romans chapter 8, the passage that Eddie read a moment ago. That is the whole reason why Paul can write Romans chapter 8, because of what Christ has done for us. You know, you think you suffer? You think you have things happen to you that you can't really explain? You think you are treated unfairly? Think of Christ who took all of your wickedness, who took all of your sin upon Himself, the only truly righteous man. And He not only suffered injustice from human hands, 
But He suffered the divine justice, the divine wrath of God His Father, which is the greatest suffering ever. And you and I, could, we can't ever comprehend what that is like, suffering the complete and holy wrath of God. So now look with me in Romans chapter 8, beginning of verse 18. Because of all of that, Paul writes this, and he says, For I consider, because of Christ and all that He has done, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this we hope, for in this hope we are saved. We were saved. Now hope that is seen is not, is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought, or know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for all those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. So you will not understand everything. Your wisdom is limited, but your joy can be full. because of what Christ has done for you. If you don't have Christ, if your joy is not in Him, then I would advise you to be greatly afraid of what you see here in Ecclesiastes. Because the word vanity describes you very well. Because without Christ... Your life is full of suffering, full of unexplained things, and then it will be gone like a breath. And nothing will ever be made of it. But with Christ, all of those things come together and you will one day understand that your suffering and the things that we cannot explain were being used to conform you into the image of Jesus. Father, we come before You and we once again thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your great promises. And that even though we can't completely understand all things, we know that You Yourself in Christ have suffered wickedness. The wickedness that 
we deserve, that we have done in and of ourselves. You took that wickedness upon yourself and we get righteousness. Father, we thank You for the cross. We thank You for Jesus. It's in His name we pray. Amen.